Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner, Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Kendrick Wynn, CEO and co-founder of Republic and Andy Bromberg, CEO and co-founder of Coinless. Guys, welcome to the illustrious Village Global Podcast. Thanks for having us. Amazing to be here. Thank you, Eric. Guys, you run uh, Republic, Coinless. Please tell us what is Coinless and Republic, what is the future of Coinless and Republic, and how do you guys work together? Yeah, Coinlist uh, is a platform for the best digital asset companies to manage their token sales, and we're also where investors find uh, deals in the space. What that means a little bit more practically is that for high-quality token projects, we help run their ICOs, handling compliance, handling transactions, uh, and then we uh, have thousands of investor clients on the platform that can invest in the deals that are are deeply vetted and and have gone through our diligence process. And in the future, we're building an exchange. Uh, We just launched uh, an airdrops product, which we can talk more about, and we work closely with Republic on a whole bunch of those services. Should we think of you as the Goldman Sachs of crypto, or how should we think of you? (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely one way to think about it. I think... A little more than Goldman Sachs, there's more of a technology play here and more of a platform play uh, and actually building an exchange, building transaction services, uh, but at a high level, yeah, absolutely financial services for this digital asset economy. One thing, though, is that on CoinList, similar to our parent company, AngelList, you got to be an accredited investor to invest. That is being a millionaire or prove yourself as such. Republic is a platform that's open to everyone, everywhere, irrespective of your income or net worth. You can only invest a much smaller amount. So it may be $50 or $1,000, not $100,000 in one, one company. And we also launch a greater variety of projects and normal startups uh, on Republic. Walk me through the concept of democratizing the asset class in terms of anyone can invest. Because some people say that the fact that people, unaccredited investors haven't been able to invest in startups has kept them poor. And one way to invest, to get rich is, is to invest. And you guys have been in the front lines for years, right? Trying to get you know, the Jobs Act, basically expand the asset class to more and more people. And it sort of did and didn't happen or, or took a long time. What's, what's sort of a surprising thing that you've learned you know, through that experience? And, and where are we right now in terms of you know, people's opportunity to make real money uh, investing? You know, in the past 20, 20 years, we've looked, we've had two greatest wealth generation events, tech startup and now crypto. By and large, it's been limited to millionaires, not even that, like venture funds, yeah. really people in the knowns, not, not the doctor in Milwaukee. Well, if you open up uh, that gateway and allow everyone to invest legally, it took a legal change uh, in 2016 for that to happen. I really think that you're going to see a lot more projects or ideas that mature into a business and some of that will become the next Uber, Airbnb or Filecoin. So overall, it's a net win for the entire ecosystem, not just for everyday people and and their wealth. And what I think is so cool there is that there's really two phases of, of change that needed to happen in order to democratize investing. One was a legal change, which Ken just talked about in Republic, relies on to allow anyone to invest in these deals. And that's the Jobs Act? Jobs Act and Reg CF, equity crowdfunding. Beyond that, there also had to be a societal change because it was that access was limited to these venture funds. And even if everyone was allowed to invest, you know, normal people just wouldn't have seen these, these top deals. And I think what ICOs did more than anything else was encourage this idea of anyone being able to invest in 
these deals might have huge upside. Initially, probably very non-compliantly in the <laughs> ecosystem. But then as regulations started to become more clear, that's where a company like Republic was able to come in and capitalize on both the societal change of everyone being able to invest on top of being able to do so in a, in a compliant manner. And that's what's enabling this democratization now. You know, absolutely. The name of the game for the entire industry's awareness. How do you get 90% of the population who didn't know until now, and they may be, you know, middle-aged and a very successful professional that they can invest in blockchain projects, in tech startups? And that would require media influencers like yourself um, spreading the word. Um, that that this is a new way of being a more engaged citizen of the world. Right. Um, and yet right now, CoinList is for accredited investors only? That's right. Can the Dr. Milwaukee invest in Filecoin? And if not, or could they have had, what needs to change illegally or culturally for that to happen in the future where Sequoia says, hey, we got our chunk, but we want to allocate the rest to sort of the mess? It's actually happening right now uh, in a lot of sales. So you'll, you'll often have tokens do what they call a pre-sale where they'll go and sell to a small set of strategic partners. And you can argue about whether this is going to continue or what the framework is going to be in the future. But you know, it's helpful to get people who are truly advisors on board. Right. There is such a thing as a value-add investor. And uh, it's worth getting them in early and giving them a special allocation where they're guaranteed some amount and maybe even some sort of discount in exchange for their knowledge and expertise and relationships and brand. The cynical take there is it's for their brand. <laughs> right. Because right. I had a tweet about yeah. that. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. and I think oftentimes that, that is true that it is yeah. for the brand. But we, we see that as a pretty acceptable outcome that yeah. they've often built their brand on the basis of strong vetting yeah. and diligence. Yeah. And so that's a real signal. But, you know, for the, the Filecoin ICO as, as an example, which was the first one that ran on CoinList, they ran a private pre-sale where they got a bunch of these value-add investors involved. And then they ran a public sale where they raised several times as much money from anyone that was accredited, you know, caveat there, it's not anyone, they didn't, you know, run the sale through a reg CF offering, but they allowed anyone who was accredited to, to invest. And that's continuing for most sales we're seeing that are high quality. They run a pre-sale, they run a public sale. Our hope would be that moving forward, and we've done this uh, already, the public sale would be done through CoinList with our accredited investor only uh, requirement, but then a chunk is done through Republic as a crowdfunding offering to enable wider distribution to even unaccredited investors. Because when Filecoin was launched, and it was a very successful ICO by all standards, they got a bit of a backlash on Reddit and whatnot, saying that, oh, the dawn of ICOs for the rich only. But when you now came about um, and in Andy introduced the props deal to Republic, they were the first major token sale that were inclusive of their early supporters who weren't millionaires. And I think that's going to be the trend that you see going forward, particularly when in the US, most token sales will be deemed securities offerings, uh, which is a long and big different issue altogether. (laughs) Right. And you're trying to be a more moderate voice in the space relative to all the hype and flack that ICOs are receiving. What sort of is, you think, still sort of misunderstood by either the broader public or even within sort of the crypto insiders about how it's going to evolve and, or needs to evolve. Yeah, there is, there's a lot that's misunderstood. I think the biggest topic that, that we find ourselves, you know, correcting people on or informing people about is that there are compliant ways to run these sales. You hear a lot of uproar and confusion about, you know, SEC this and other agencies that, and, you know, we feel like it's actually pretty straightforward to run a sale uh, as a securities offer, which is what Ken said. And that's when you need to either go through a platform like CoinList and do you know, it's called a Reg D offering where you sell to accredited investors or go through a platform like Republic or like CF offering where you're selling to unaccredited investors. It is a pain. It is not as easy as putting a buy button up on a website and allowing people to hit purchase and, and buy it. There may be a world in the future where 
There are easier ways to run specific types of sales. That's where more clarity might come out. And you might have sales that are not offerings of securities. But for the time being, if you're willing to say it's an offering of securities, we actually think it's pretty straightforward to run a sale. And uh, and a lot of the concern that people have said, uh, you know, we're not going to run a sale because we don't know if it's going to be compliant or not. We look at that and say, actually, we're almost certain that it is compliant to run a sale as a securities offering. The SEC has said as much in, in, in informal guidance, and uh, and we feel good about that. If you're willing to deal with the pain, it's an easy thing to do. And beyond just sales, right, Andy, you have uh, airdrops, which is not meant for fundraising and meant for different type of distribution. That's right. Yeah, airdrops, uh, for those who don't know, are a way to distribute tokens to an existing community or to a new community in order to bootstrap your network. So be able to get some initial usage on your network by giving away tokens to, to users. Uh, there were a bunch of these early on, kind of similar to ICOs. And then lawyers took a step back and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you look at some precedent here, you probably can't airdrop. You can't give these things away. It's still an offering of securities. And the precedent for this is, you know, in the dot-com bubble, companies tried to give away stock. And the right. SEC said, hey, you can't do that. So what we did is we stepped back and said, is there a way for us to give these tokens away for free or nearly for free to users that's in compliance with securities laws? And we ended up working with Republic on this, as well as some internal processes. And we built a way to do so compliantly. Our announcement of this was, I think, the first time anyone had talked about this. But it's another case where we're saying, yes, it is a little bit harder. It's not quite as easy as just getting addresses and sending around tokens. But there is a way to do it compliantly. And if you're willing to put in the time and effort, it's actually not a regulatory gray area. So you, you guys both probably talked to a lot of startups who are asking themselves, should they ICO? Is it as simplistic as saying, if your you know, company doesn't need or product doesn't need a blockchain, you know, don't use it? Or like, how, how do you don't do it? How do you sort of advise? People? For me, it's pretty much that simplistic. That is, if there isn't an authentic use case of blockchain to incentivize or to boost growth beyond just monetary value in near term, it wouldn't be a project that the Republic team... And how do you know when it's authentic? Oh, it's a case-by-case analysis. You know, a project like Republic, we are marketplace, we may not building the next network, but they may may very well be an actual use case for a Republic token. Um, And that can be a securities token, a fund token. So it very much depends on the problem that a project is trying to solve and whether blockchain or tokenized asset is an authentic component. Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. Just to put put a point on that, I think there's, there's really two categories. One category is there's a variety of names for this network tokens or protocol tokens. And that's the question of, do you really need a blockchain? Is there a need for a distributed decentralized system that governs something? So Filecoin's a great example of this, where there's a really powerful use case for having a blockchain and a token in the ecosystem. And that's a worthwhile project to pursue an ICO. I do think there's a second category and people get tripped up on this. Sometimes when you start talking about securities tokens, these are tokens that are, uh, explicitly always will be securities. They might represent something like equity in a company or uh, a real estate asset or some underlying asset. And there are advantages to tokenizing these assets, things like liquidity and transparency, access to capital. And for those ones, you don't necessarily need a blockchain. You're actually not, usually not developing a new blockchain. You're using the token for a different purpose. So it's not so much about there being an advantage to a distributed decentralized system there. It's that there's an advantage to having this liquid token model for the product. Uh, And that's a separate category. But at the same time, those securities tokens are unlikely to thousand X like these protocol tokens might there. They represent some underlying asset assets. Usually don't thousand X. And so it's, it's really two different categories that I think often get conflated when we talk about tokens in general. 
And there's even that, that middle case, which is the not to keep touching on Republic uh, Securities token. We are a securities token through and through. And yet, because we're a marketplace, there are market participants like users who provide information to the Republic network. Take that into account in thinking through our token economics to use the token and incentivize literally every member within this network um, rather than just being a fund, a tokenized, you know, venture fund. You know, when venture capitalists look at at this space, they're, they're, they're sort of mind-boggled for a few reasons. One, because, you know, there was a lot of talk about it being a threat to venture, you know, ICOs being a threat to, to BC uh, currently. When we talk, we've been talking about how, you know, there's still a role for advice and mentorship and expertise and, and, what, and your board struck governance whatnot. But two, because there's so much, you know, thousand X money sloshing around. But three, also because... You just tokens are very different than equity and valuations are very different. So when VCs come to you and say, hey, how should we be thinking about you know, crypto at, at our firm? What should our strategy be? What do you advise them? Yeah, I, it's, a, it's a tough question. I think the, the simple question of how you evaluate a token investment is actually pretty similar to how you evaluate a venture investment. You look at the team, the market, the product, the deal. And then there's one layer on top, which is if it's a, a network token, protocol token, you need to evaluate the token economic model, uh, which is to say, you know, is there, uh, will value accrue to this token long term? Is there actual, is the economy within the token a good economy that will benefit the participants and increase in value? Um, but beyond that, you go back to those same criteria used to evaluate a startup. It turns out that it's harder with tokens if you don't have the expertise. But I would also look and say that most venture capitalists don't have deep subject matter expertise in most of their investments. And so it's not, it's not a, a whole new world there. There's a level of learning that you need to do, a level of, of diligence and research you need to do, but it's not that different from investing in, in venture, I don't think. That, I think, lends itself really neatly to making equity investments in token companies because you can evaluate the deal there, the terms of the deal, much more easily than investing in a token itself. I think we're so early in this token sale market, I mean, really a year into it, right. that what good terms are around a token network valuation is very unclear. So that's the one place where more work needs to be done. But outside of that, and especially if you're making equity investments in token companies, I think it's totally worthwhile assuming you do your diligence the same way you would for any other startup. I would agree with that. And I think more and more, you're going to see more VCs asking for an equity uh, investment or equity ownership in addition to the token or the future as tokens that they are as control as a hedge. And if it's a business that has an independent value proposition beyond just the value of the tokens, the a successful, you know, token implementation would add a lot of value to that the other side of the business that it only makes sense that they would have a, a stake uh, in, in that business if they so choose. Did you read or hear about John Fiefer, his essay on utility yeah. tokens at either worth zero? It's a really good essay. I do think that he makes a good argument. Basically, no utility tokens have gone live yet. And right. so we really have no evidence one way or the other how these things are going to be valued. I do think that there is a compelling case that he makes around kind of the quantity theory of money and, yep. and you know, if these tokens will, will drive down to zero value, but I don't think it's true for all of them. I think there's probably a large set of tokens that will drive down to zero value. And again, not because of a, a failure of the token, actual uh, flaws in the token economic model that, that incentivize the price to go down instead of up in the long term. Uh, but I do think there are tokens where that is not true. And, and particularly, I think the class that we've seen now that we think will 
increase and maintain their value is tokens with a staking model. Mm-hmm. So tokens, there's an incentive for certain parties to hold onto the token instead of moving it around as fast as they can. So what are some examples? So Filecoin's a really good example of that. Uh, Ethereum's proposing a staking model. Augur has a staking model. Uh, there's a lot of tokens out there, and that's where users get some utility from basically putting the tokens in escrow for some period of time and then retrieving them later. And that counteracts some of the arguments that he made. But again, we're basing this on no empirical evidence right now, so we'll have to see what that looks like. And a more like simplistic uh, analogy of that is stamp collectors, right. right? Or baseball cards, you have a limited set of assets, in this case, digital asset, would demand over time. And if as long as this demand specifically increase demand over time, then, you know, then it has value. Uh, value is a very human psychological notion. Yeah. Well, is, is that the only place we're seeing value right now in terms of use cases that make sense, like CryptoKitties, collectibles, NFTs? Are there other th- things in which we're seeing real use? Not yet. There's not a lot of token networks that are live, but it's not that's not a matter of there being things that are live and them not seeing demand and value. It's a matter of things not being live. Right. Uh, and so I think over the next kind of six months, we'll see a bunch of projects go live uh, and we'll have a lot more information at that point. Is there some, another area in which you would estimate, oh, this is going to be sort of a subcategory that is going to have some interesting use cases? Yeah, I think, well, early on, I think a lot of the, the value will be in the infrastructure just because that's needed to support mm-hmm. all these other use cases. So you see something like Ethereum whose value has gone up massively as a result of all these projects being built on top of it, there will probably be several cases like that. And then we'll start to emerge into the application layer as the UIs get built out, as the user experiences get fixed. And that's where we'll see more value accrue at that point. I can't wait to see what big companies with billions of users like Facebook, yep. uh, once they decide to go all in and implement tokens just to drive activities rather than an instrument to fundraise, what the outcome of that and what the actual uses yeah. would be. Well, uh, we probably will see that over the next well, year. They just put David Marcus in the project. Shout out Morgan Beller. Exactly. Working on it. The centralization versus decentralization, you were talking earlier, you know, you need to build an exchange. We were just talking about some use cases of dApps. I've heard this, this sort of sentiment that, you know, decentralized apps, but centralized infrastructure exchanges. And then there's also sort of, you know, zero X and sort of, that group of people, I guess, where do you stand on sort of centralization versus decentralization? When does one make sense with sort of overarching philosophy behind that? You know, for decentralized uh, exchanges, which is like order rage, you do have to answer one question, which is if most tokens or new tokens are going to be securities, someone has to be regulated. The SEC cannot possibly regulate every single person on the exchange. They're going to regulate whichever entity that monetizes or benefits from it. So the notion of, oh, we're a decentralized exchange, therefore no licenses are needed, I think is probably a premature analysis. Um, so I'm still trying to... That, that's not an area that I've been spending a lot of time focusing on, but I am very interested in seeing how things work out for, for the decentralized exchanges to be a door. Yeah, and I think a rule of thumb, and not true in every case, but generally, wherever the crypto world touches the real world, there's probably going to be a centralized or regulated party. You know, if for no other reason than uh, what's called the Oracle problem in crypto, which is how does a you know distributed network know facts about the real world? You need an Oracle, a source to tell you the truth. But even more than that, I, I just think, you know, to Ken's point, when you start to touch the real world and, and fiat currency and and uh, and regulated assets, there often is going to need to be a central central party. 
And it might be that there are a number of central parties and users have options between them. And that makes it a little bit more distributed. But at the end of the day, uh, you're going to need something interfacing with the real world as a trusted source that's regulated or, or vetted, as opposed to just being all distributed. That said, I'm bullish on distributed things. I wouldn't be right. in this industry if I wasn't. And I think the trend towards uh, decentralization is a real one and a good one. But the primary example, there, there aren't too many better examples of decentralized network than Bitcoin itself. And now, probably two dozen entities around the world have outweighed outsized influence on volatility and pricing of what should be decentralized, right? Uh, the regulatory implication long run on how to deal with that influence, uh, assuming that Bitcoin continues to grow and establish itself as the dominant uh, networking currency. Again, uh, an issue that still not yet resolved. Um, and that's what makes this whole ecosystem exciting. Yeah. The unknowns. There are a lot of exchanges popping up and a lot of different types of exchanges. And you guys mentioned yourself that, that that's the dream. What do you think separates, like, what's going to make Coinless Exchange more successful than some of these other exchanges or what really matters? Yeah. So specifically, Coinless is building a, a liquid and compliant secondary exchange for security. So for tokenized securities, right. we're not trying to compete with Coinbase on building a Bitcoin exchange where you can put your fiat in and get yeah. Bitcoin out or a place where you can trade uh, Bitcoin for Ethereum or, or anything like that specifically for things like tokenized startup equity or early stage tokens that are still securities or tokenized real estate. That's the type of exchange we're building. Security tokens. Security tokens. I said it, I think the two two things that you need to have in order for that to be successful are liquidity and compliance. Compliance happens to be a core competency of ours. And I think there will be a bunch of exchanges along that set that launch with weak compliance efforts. Uh, And that is, it's one of those things where there's not much upside to having great compliance, but there's just a hell of a lot of downside to having bad compliance. And so, you know, hitting, crossing that bar and making sure that, you know, know, get shut down is is important. The second piece is liquidity and you need a pool of liquidity in order to take one of these illiquid assets and make it liquid. Liquidity is a virtuous cycle. When something's illiquid, it stays illiquid. When something starts to get some bootstrapping liquidity, it becomes more and more liquid over time. We see this in markets over and over again. That means that you need an initial source of liquidity. What does Coinless have? Thousands and thousands of investors on the platform that have invested in crypto that will want to invest in these assets and can bootstrap the liquidity there. So that, that to us is a huge advantage over a lot of these other exchanges that will launch with maybe some interesting assets, but no investors in the platform. And if there's no demand, you just won't get the market started. I am so glad that Andy and Coinless are finally go, going public with uh, their plan for a securities centralized though, exchange. Uh, in addition to liquidity and compliance, if I may, I would add that access to deal and credibility uh, go a long way. Uh, and to that end, that remains to be a uh, Coinless and AngelList advantage. Really? You briefly mentioned you know, tokenized startup equity. You mentioned real estate. Dave Sachs just gave an interview, basically saying that you know real estate represents you know one point three billion dollars illiquid assets that you know can now be um, tokenized. Let's talk more about explain what security tokens are and what, what the opportunity is. Why it's so exciting? Yeah, it's a broad term, and and I think a lot of the times when people say this, they they leave out a lot of details, and I, I have here too. It's a complicated topic. At its core, this type of security token, so an asset backed token is pretty simple. It's just a token that represents an asset in the same way a share represents a share of a company. In fact, Delaware uh, corporate charter was amended and you can now represent shares of a Delaware company with blockchain tokens in addition to doing digital shares or paper shares or anything else. 
So it can be as simple as just a token that represents ownership in a company. The advantages that we see here are, you know, the same advantages of any type of digitization of an asset. So liquidity, uh, transparency, fractionalization is a really big one, allowing you to sell smaller and smaller portions of an asset. So like um, a home, for example, we've exactly, never really had that before. Exactly. Auditability, many of those. But what tokenization gives you is access to a pool of liquidity that's massive, which is investors that have a lot of money in crypto and want to diversify. And that pool of liquidity is a great way to bootstrap liquidity for these for these markets. And it also gives you, and I think people underrate this, and you know, this sounds, uh, contrary to your earlier point, a little, little hypey, but I think it's true. People are believers in blockchain technology right yep. now and token technology. And if that excitement and belief is what it takes to get these assets to tokenize and digitize, that's a good thing. Yeah. And it may be that, you know, the digitization, central digitization and tokenization are not that far apart from each other. But if the tokenization is what gets people to do it, that's worthwhile. And, uh, and we really see this as a, a moment in time when you can capitalize on that and we can have this sea change of tokenizing assets, digitizing them and, and enabling this future of, of liquid markets for everybody. I involved this tweet. Great disclaimer to any subject, <laughs> uh, this tweet of like, you know, Bitcoin is changing the world dressed up as a get rich quick scheme. Talk about why, but it was, we haven't seen much. We're still at super early innings. Of, like why haven't security, like, why aren't we digitizing these assets yet? Or what barrier needs to be crossed in order for, for that to happen? I think it's just the infrastructure and the knowledge. Uh, people are, again, we're so early in this industry. We spent a bunch of time building protocol tokens as yeah. an industry. Now we've got to figure out the best practices for building securities tokens. These exchanges need to be built. You can't have liquidity if there's no exchange to trade it on. So it's just a matter of building out infrastructure and, and, uh, and making it happen. I, I don't think there's any kind of structural issues there. And regulatory uncertainty. I'll give you an example. Straight up in traditional market, your ownership in your home, that's not securities interest. It's just real estate interest, exempted. Well, now if you divide that into a million parts and wrap a digital token around each one millionth of what is not a securities interest, is that security or not? Um, And that lack of clarity and the consequences of making the wrong bet is something that even the most informed, well-funded team would want to take their time. And like Andy said, uh, at least in the U.S., the, uh, the we were so new into it, hardly a year or so. You've spent a ton of time on the regulatory side over the past few years. Where, where is it all going to shake out? In terms of ICOs, like, are, are we in for like a rude awakening? Are we... I don't think we're in for a real awakening. I think only if you have wrong expectations. Yeah. Some of them, some of those wrong or misinformed expectations would be expecting that there's going to be a guideline, black and white uh, right. guidance from the SEC next month or be even by the end of the year. The name of the game very much is a dialogue, the public-private partnership and dialogue. Uh, and hopefully regulators take their time, which the SEC has been doing and the CFTC. I think in the U.S., U.S. regulators at the federal level have been quite thoughtful about it. And we hope that as they understand this technology more and more, the risk of drastic, ill-informed, ill-advised regulations go down over time. Um, so I think we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. I want to mention a topic and then I want to see whether you have a non-obvious view on that topic. So one is the FAT protocol thesis. Uh, some people have been criticizing it. Basically, the idea that the value accrues you know, mostly to the protocol as opposed to the application and how that was so different from Web 2.0 era. Where, where... Yeah, I, I think generally that's right. And the reason it's right is because 
This is an underrated aspect of these projects. They're open source. So it's really easy to copy these application projects. And if the application project is charging some sort of fee or is, you know, being a rent seeker in some way, anyone can take that project, go to the line of code that defines the fee, make it zero, and then relaunch that project. And maybe if the original one has some critical mass, it's hard to get over, but you know, there's no inherent reason these things can charge or be rent-seeking middlemen. And I think that means a lot of the value will accrue to the protocols on which everything is built. I wouldn't go as extreme as the original blog post. I think there will be applications that reach some sort of critical mass and that can have some real value accrual. I think there will be applications that interface with the real world somehow and require some sort of semi-centralized component and have moats there that can allow them to, to accrue value. But I do think for the most part, uh, the FAT protocol thesis uh, will end up being I would agree with that. Well, I was going to talk about privacy coin, but then I wanted to add, like, what's the government's response going to be? Are they going to issue their own? You know, in Venezuela, you saw they issue their own sort of currency. Like, how are how are governments going to respond in terms of creating their own fiat back cryptocurrency? Or what are your thoughts there? I think you're not going to see any major country, major currency. So China is uh, not going to create sort of a. I would find that surprising, at least in the near term. I think there's some initiative in Russia, but uh, how far it has gone is, aside from just, you know, making news, is unclear. More like Ecuador, Venezuela. I wouldn't be surprised if Iran itself will, will have a uh, digital currency. But wouldn't it be in their best interest to try to disrupt themselves? It's a great way to track what's going on. I'm actually, I'm a little more optimistic. I don't know. I was going to say, I don't know if optimistic is the right term, but I'm, a, I, I'm willing to believe a little more that governments are going to issue these coins if they become kind of a dominant method of economic exchange and they'll be centralized or semi-centralized, they won't have all the advantages of these systems we're talking about, but uh, some components will still be there. And I think it's a, a way for faster experimentation with, with monetary policy, which is, which is interesting to me. But I also think, no, I know a lot of governments are participating in this crypto economy and buying right. existing coins themselves. And that is a government play in and of itself, accumulating stockpiles in the same way, They've always accumulated stockpiles of gold and other commodities. But even here in the U.S., you have city government, Berkeley across right. the bay, uh, already uh, getting into this space. Uh, so uh, again, I mean, I would agree with Andy that it may be ten years out rather than right. over the next two years to see a major country uh, tokenizing their the currency. Yeah, there's a there's a few people, smart people, who think that crypto assets can be or decentralized you know, applications can be enormous, even if. Crypto never makes a dent in payments, like just with the surrounding use cases. Or even if that if it does make a dent in payments, payments is so fragmented that it won't really make a big dent relative to you know the other use cases. Are you do you guys agree with that? Are you? I would. That is any ecosystem, any business that depends on multiple participants within an ecosystem. By and large, up to date, one demographic would be doing things for free. Tokenizing or a blockchain application is a really good way. If done thoughtfully to incentivize everyone and out of it, irrespective of the external use case of the currency or the token itself, for that business, for that ecosystem is a tremendous value add. There's no other way of doing it. Are we going to see decentralized Ubers, decentralized Airbnbs, decentralized Facebooks? And if so, like what needs to happen for that to be that to be true. I, I think so. I think there are there ones that have critical mass and even displace larger problems than people are are giving credit for in some of those spaces. Identity and reputation are open questions in the crypto ecosystem, and those are necessary components for something like a decentralized Airbnb or decentralized Uber. I, I think there are advantages. Again, 
You cut down on the rent-seeking fees in the middle. You make it easier to do these peer-to-peer transactions. There are advantages to making that a decentralized system, but I think it will be quite a while before we reach any sort of near feature parity with the centralized versions. We're talking many, many, many years. Yeah. And any business model that's highly regulated is going to be that much more difficult for them to uh, to tokenize or become decentralized or undertake an effort to become truly decentralized naturally. Where do you guys stand on stablecoins? I'm of the opinion that stablecoins are an important part of the ecosystem. If you're transacting with decentralized services, you want something that is relatively stable. You don't want to buy something and have it change in value the next day. I think we're, again, early in this ecosystem. It may be that the most valuable stable coins are not actually stable in the way we usually talk about it, but they're just low volatility over some time period. If I am using it for payments of some sort, I actually don't really need it to be worth the same amount today as it's worth in three years. I just need it to be worth the same amount today or close to the same amount as it will be within a week or two, enough time for me to move in and out of those different currencies. And so it's there is a question of stable on what time frame for different applications. And then I also think we'll, we're going to see a real battle between whether it's possible to have an algorithmic stablecoin that's not collateralized, whether fiat collateralized stablecoins are effective, whether crypto collateralized stablecoins are effective. Again, no empirical evidence thus far, really on any sort of scale for any of these. And I think we'll see a lot of movement over, on that over the next uh, next six or nine months. I'm actually excited to see who's going to win that game. It's such a huge market, probably in the trillions of dollars in yeah. terms of market size. And there are quite a few projects, both more established and brand new, aiming to tackle this, this challenge. I have some really smart friends working on different solutions. Uh, the trust token uh, people, Danny and Raphael and Steve, and uh, obviously Basis and Bitcoin's team as well. I'm just excited to see who's going to emerge yeah. uh, as the the stable coin use around the world. Smart of you to diversify your friendships. <laughs> when, so in the next, when we're talking, you know, five years from now, is there going to be, you know, one dominant store value, maybe Bitcoin? Is there going to be one do- smart contract platform, one dominant stable? Like what's, how is it all going to shake out? Uh, except for, I mean, rare cases, I can't even think of one right now. Stable coin may be an exception, but there will be multiple players. And as much as I, uh, even exchanges, securities exchanges, uh, probably one in the U.S. and a couple more in outside of the U.S. Uh, so I would say there are a few dominant players emerge in each ecosystem, but to think of one monopolizing it, I don't see it just yet. Yeah, I think I think it's like any business or really anything at all. They, these things are cyclical. There tends to be one that dominates for a while because, you know, dominance allows for economies of scale and allows for, you know, more uh, easier interfacing between different parties. Uh, and then eventually something better comes around. And that happens with companies all the time, MySpace, Facebook, whatever. It happens with currencies. The world reserve currency changes every so many years. Uh, and so I think that we will see these cycles, but generally we'll see kind of one dominant one or maybe two dominant ones at a time for, for different use cases. I also... One last point there, I do think there will be some regional winners where perhaps there's a, a global winner for a certain use case, but then maybe a, a, a more specifically localized one for China or different different regions. Uh, and I wouldn't rule out the idea that that you know region specific uh, tokens will be a will be a factor as well. You know, today um, most, if not all, businesses or any organization or project. Each of them would have their own unique personality. Uh, and I think in the crypto space, personality remains to be a differentiator, uh, even once it has matured. So different strokes for different folks. 
That's why you have Fox News and MSNBC and yeah. eight dozen more platforms. Maybe to close out here, one big prediction from both of you guys in, in the crypto space over the next three years, which is really like 300 years in, uh, in crypto world. The rise, I mean, for me, the rise of securities tokens that I think in the next three years, the value of the combined value of all securities tokens will be, you know, maybe an order of magnitude over or the value of transactions on between securities tokens will be maybe an order of magnitude over the transactions of non-securities tokens. Just because, you know, to the, the SAC's point earlier, yep. these markets are so massive. And if this trend hits the way we think it will, there's so much value to be built there. In the long term, perhaps that evens out more as these protocols begin to dominate everything yep. and they begin to accrue real massive value. But over the next three years, you know, you tokenize a $100 million building, it is instantly worth $100 million and that's not made up. You launch a protocol token and it's got to build value over time. And so I think we'll see, at least in the short to midterm, massive value from security tokens outpacing that from protocol tokens. And say more about how that changes society because I think sometimes people don't fully appreciate the like how hyper liquidity trickles into how security yeah. tokens will yeah yeah well i think or what, what, what why that matters why 100 million like how is that game changing to society yeah i think it, it really goes down to a belief in markets that we believe that markets are good and liquid markets increase price efficiency you know there's i give you a premium on for the, the price for liquidity uh they they drive beneficial market and we see this you know when the municipal bond market became liquid more liquid, there was massive value creation. And the simple act of taking something from an illiquid state to a liquid state is a win for society. And uh, and tokenization, digitization is a real path to that for a lot of assets that previously have not had one. I would bet that in three years, more people in the US would be owning, trading, and selling crypto assets than they do public stock. Mm. Certainly, I think the the, the comparison between startup investing in the traditional sense in crypto asset must be already pretty close. I haven't looked at the number, um, but I would, would make a wager on, on that with the public market in three years. Cool. Guys, this has been a fantastic podcast. Where can people learn more about you know, Republic and Coinless Online and any of the last plugs? Republic.co.co.com And Coinless.co.co.com <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Thank you.